You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. curriculum where members of the Christian Humanist Radio Network read slowly and with much intention through Columbia University's Humanities Reading List. I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer, typically of the Christian Feminist Podcast, and uh, with me tonight are Jay Eldred and Christina Bieber-Lake. Hey, Christina and Jay. Hey. Hello. Christina is the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton College in Wheaton, Illinois, where she lives with her husband and son. She's also one of my co-panelists on the Christian Feminist Podcast, where she talks about poetry, literary theory, and science fiction. Jay Eldred is a frequent guest on the Sectarian Review Podcast. He's an author and a historian. He works in student services at Craven Community College in New Bern, North Carolina. How's it going, guys? Doing well. Been busy. Can't complain. Uh, I guess before we get going, I should uh, introduce myself, which I did not do earlier. Apologies. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. As I said, I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael, and our cat, Dorothy Parker, who may make an auditory appearance on this podcast. Uh, I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University. And uh, to make money, I'm a digital community manager for an Atlanta startup that serves women entrepreneurs. Uh, So tonight we are all here together because we're going to talk about books 10 and 11 of the Odyssey. And I'm super excited because these two books contain two of my favorite episodes in the Odyssey, uh, The Encounter with Circe and Odysseus's trip to the underworld. But before we get there... We're going to start at the beginning of book 10, which is the encounter with Aeolus, uh, god of wind. It's a pretty minor happening in the Odyssey compared to the two big uh, set pieces I just mentioned, but I think it's important because it sets a tone and talks about uh, the kind of power that the gods of the Greek pantheon have and the kind of power they don't have. Can one of you break down the Aeolus scene a little bit? What happens in it, and what does it have to say to us about power? You want to take that, Jay? What if I said no? Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I can do it. Well, I was, I was, I, I got the uh, the question, and I was struggling with, with. I think I misunderstood it because I was viewing book ten and even parts of book eleven through a spirit of hospitality rather than power. So I, I was not able to, to switch my brain to power mode. I, I mean, I think you can certainly talk about hospitality as well. Um, I think that's, that's a big part of it. Well, I mean, that, that is true. We have, in the scene, we have two, two different visits that Odysseus makes here. And in the first, like my only note for his first visit was that Aeolus was a windbag, literally. Because <laughs> um, he took a whole month to talk about 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 Troy. And I mean, even we didn't take that long to talk about it, did we? 
I, I'm no, not sure. Well, I mean, we're reading pretty slow, but I don't know that we're reading that yeah, we're slow. Not. Yeah. There were two different trips that Odysseus makes in this in this particular chapter, and he never stays or he overstays his welcome, you might say. So he's the he's the inhospitable house guest to some degree. But at the same token, he's the one that has the power because as a guest, the the host would have certain rights or certain responsibilities that he's bound to to give his guest. Yeah, the first time. But why do you think he changes such big, uh, you know, the second time? Like in my oh. transition, it's like, why are you here again? You know. <laughs> well, it's almost like, you know, I just got rid of you. Why have you come back? Yeah. And then I think I think as well is that when he came back the second time he was he was begging for something. I don't see in the first part, you know, he gets that literal bag of wind. I don't see that Odysseus asked for it. It was more mm-hmm. of a parting it was more of a parting gift. And yeah, it was we, a great parting gift. It was gonna send them right home. Right. And we could talk about we I'm certain we'll talk about what happens to that. Yeah. But on his return it's like, hey, I messed up. Can you give me another one? And it's like, yeah. no, no. Yeah, I viewed it as judgment from them. It's like, you really blew this. You know, uh, I gave you everything you needed to get home, and now you're back here. And it's like, get away, you know. Um, in fact, he says, get out, you nasty creature. Leave my island now. It is not right for me to help convey a man so deeply hated by the gods. So it's almost as if he feels like he's a token of, you know, like bad luck or something. If you can't manage to get home with this bag of wind that I've given you, um, then get out of my sight. But it still seemed a little bit harsh to me. Well, I I think it proves that, like, there are gods and then there are gods, right? Mm, Because... Mm -hmm. Aeolus has a certain amount of power. I mean, he has this magic bag of wind, but um, the lines you just quoted, Christina, seventy-two-ish. Um, mm-hmm. It is not right for me to help convey a man so deeply hated by the gods. You godforsaken thing! How dare you come here? Get out! So, you know, if if certain gods, um, Zeus, for example, who's mentioned over and over, hate you, there's nothing other gods mm-hmm. can do about it. No matter you know, how much uh, power or how many magic things they they might have. Mm -hmm. That brings up an interesting relationship that I saw, that Zeus is the one who made Aeolus the the lord of this island, and yet Mm -hmm. Aeolus is also an old friend of Odysseus's, apparently, and Zeus hated Odysseus. So you almost have that go-between, caught-in-the-middle kind of thing. Yeah, it it is interesting. Like Odysseus does seem to get around. Like he's he's one of those people who kind of always knows everyone, you know? <laughs> That's probably the biggest understatement. Odysseus gets around. Yeah. He really does. I mean, he does. I will we'll we'll talk about uh we'll talk more about that later when we get to the Circe section. <laughs> uh but 
Yeah, I think it's interesting, um, Jade, that point you're making about um, Odysseus as intermediary here between two different gods, because we're told that he, over and over, that he is wily and adaptable, and all these mm-hmm. adjectives about him sort of being suited to all kinds of situations. Um, so I, I think that's, uh, you're making a really relevant point in terms of like, he cultivates these relationships um maybe because he's adaptable or he's adaptable because he cultivates these relationships. I'm not sure which way it goes. But he's good at it. And it's quite interesting to me that Zeus is not blamed for this by anybody. Like Zeus doesn't take the, take any actions here against Odysseus. It's, it's more like they brought it on themselves by opening the bag too early. Right, and all the winds rush out. So, and it was Odysseus was asleep, and then he blames himself for going to sleep. But to me, it's just so stunning because they're there, and you can see the fire on the land, like they're that close to home. And then those the his crew opens up the back, and this this is that bad idea took hold of them. They did it. They opened up the bag, and all the winds rushed out at once. Yeah, and they all got a, buffeted far from home. It's such a giant bummer. Yeah, seriously, they were right there. I mean, if the goal has always been to get home, right? You could see the fire on the shore. And, and it's interesting, but Odysseus kind of takes it on himself. He just says, you know, I, I fell asleep. Um, and he, you know, he blames his men, too, but it's mostly his men's fault, really. But I just think it's interesting that Zeus is not brought into it. They're not like, oh, dang, Zeus, you know, you did this to us. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think that's that's not their conception of how the gods work at all. Mm-hmm. Like, um, their their conception of the gods is, you know, that good things and bad things come from them, but it's it's never the fault of the gods. It's just the will of the gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But even that's not emphasized, oddly enough, because you might expect it to be. Uh, you know, Zeus didn't have it in the cards for them, or at least not in my translation. I think you and I have the same one, Victoria. Are, um, I'm using the Emily Wilson. Yeah. Yeah. I've read it three times before in three different translations. This was a revelation. I love this translation. I love it, too. It's oh, so, it so, much. so wonderful and so musical and so different. And you can tell that it's a woman's voice. I'm, I'm going to keep raving about it as we go forward. But um, what translation yeah, do you have, Jay? <laughs> well, I've read the Emily Wilson translation, but the one that I'm using for this read through is Robert Fitzgerald. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's the one I read last. Yeah, yeah, I, I like the Fitzgerald too. I've I've read that one as well, um, but I I wanted to um, use this series as an excuse to finally buy the Wilson translation, and I'm I'm so glad I did. <laughs> it's so beautiful. It is. <laughs> it's um, pretty. The book is pretty. The translation is nice. I love every bit of the reading experience of this. Yeah. Translation. Um, yeah. And we'll we'll get more into that. Um, probably as we move along. Um, do we have more stuff to say about Aeolus, or should we move forward? I don't have anything more on that. Nor do I. Okay. Um, so we've said that they 
almost get home and then they don't. Um, this is a series of episodes, so we're going to keep traveling. Um, given that it's a series of episodes, um, I have a question. What is this town of giants here for? Is it just like a weird stopover before we get to Circe or is something more going on? Because I, I don't really see much happening there except like strange episode with monsters. Am I missing <laughs> I, something? No, I wondered the same thing. Uh, it just seemed kind of thrown in there, you know, because I'm looking for some sign of a, of a kind of a, maybe a judgment on them, you know, for being stupid. Maybe that was it. And it's like, you're going to get eaten by some giants now. And in fact, it's quite like gruesome meal. They speared them like fish, you know? <laughs> um. Yeah. It's, it's super gross. Um, the, the way, not just that people get eaten, but they get eaten in quite graphic ways. Yeah. And he just loses a lot of his men, you know, which doesn't all, always happen at that right juncture but they do here um and that's when they meet Cer- Circe is right when they've lost a whole bunch of of men there's it, the implication is, is several ships yeah i'm not sure about the actual the actual village but there is a i guess there's like a thematic tie because the land that of the giants is described as having no night. And then when we pick up with book 12, when they visit, um, in my translation, it's called the men of winter, that land has no day. So there's that parallelism there. Or, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Jay. But that was the only note that I made was, oh, look, there it is. I didn't know what to do with it. Okay. I mean, that's probably okay. In a lot of these episodic stories, some places just exist to get you to the next place. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that might be okay. Yeah, uh, I think that's, yeah, I think it's a transitional scene. Okay. Um, but I, I think agree that, uh, Circe and the the pigs are the main attraction of book 10. (laughs) (laughs) They are. Okay. Uh, So I am super interested in this interlude. I think she's a super interesting character. And I've always found her powers kind of perversely attractive uh, as a woman. I guess because of the implication that... Um, she has this power over men and she's, she's sort of using the feminine power available to her any way that she can, which I think historically, you know, we've, we've seen to be true in, in a lot of situations. Women have, um, when they don't have a lot of social power in other areas, used their sexuality to get things done because that's what's available to them, um, but I, I also think the language that um, Wilson uses to talk about the men um, after they get transformed is really interesting, too. Um, I'm reading from 230, I guess around 240, 238, 240. Um, 
Then she struck them using her magic wand and pinned them in the pigsty. They were turned to pigs in body and voice and hair. Their minds remained the same. They squealed at their imprisonment. So that phrase, their minds remained the same, I think is really, um, really telling because it, to me, it means two ways. One, it means they knew what was happening to them. They were cognizant. Their bodies um, changed, but they still had their human brains. But also, their minds remained the same. Suggests to me there's a degree to which, in their minds, they were already kind of piggish. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that so, a lot. So I, I think... I think that's, um, you know, in, in keeping with the reading that Circe is using her attractiveness to her advantage the way that she can, um, I really like Wilson's uh, word choice there. But uh, I, have, I have talked enough. Tell me what, um, what you think about this interlude, and uh, is it weird that I think Circe is so interesting and cool? It's not weird at all. Have you read or heard about Miller's book, you know, Madeline Miller's book, Circe? I mean, I have it. I have, I've started it, but I haven't gotten very far in it. Uh, I've, it, I've it's, heard it's great and I want yeah. to read it, but I have not. Yeah. We should do that on the, on the CFP, you know, that sometimes it seems like a perfect book for us to discuss because yes. obviously it's taking that whole theme and developing it quite extensively. And I wish I had more to say about it, but I just have only just started the book. Um, but uh, yeah. that's totally a part of this is is her not only using sexuality and these kind of magic potions, but also the again the hospitality or the feasting mm-hmm. theme because they had just eaten the stag, right? They were obviously really hungry, and Odysseus got the stag, and and then they hear her beautiful singing, and they're drawn in. But, but it's like, to me, it's important that they turn into pigs, you know, because they, they're just always feasting. And they stay there a year, feasting. Even, even um, and Odysseus, Circe offers Odysseus, you know, let's feast, let's have wine, let's have meat. And he's like, well, how can I do these things when my men are out there at, like pigs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and yet there seems to be this implication that this is a place where you get to be sated, right? Like all of your piggy needs are met. <laughs> it's not a very good way to put it, but you know what um, I mean? Like your your sort of animal desires right. are met. But but even even too much, even good things, if you have too much of them, too much. are bad, right? It's not, it's Correct. violating that Aristotelian mean that, totally. we've, that we've talked about before. Even though hospitality and feasting are Greek values, which we already know, um, this, is, this is not that. Or it's, it's, it's at least that. an excess of that. It's an excess of that which is defined as imprisonment. It's specifically defined as a kind of a cage. Um, that, that they're like in pens, <laughs> you know, that they can't get out of this cage. And they are not aware of it, really, until they're actually turned into pigs. Um, and it's interesting, too, because on that same section that you were reading, Victoria, she says um, just above that, she added potent drugs to make them totally forget their home. You know, and since that's one of the major themes, right, of the Odyssey is going home, having enough drive to go home, right, as opposed to being 
stuck somewhere where you've got all your needs being met, like, you know, with Calypso and so many of the other major scenes. And so to me, that's so much of it. Like if you lose the drive to go home, you're, you're, you're in prison in some way, like in, to your desires almost. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one more thing um, I will say, and then I'll let Jay talk. Sorry, Jay. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, the women are just going to take over. <laughs> uh so I think it's important that when we see Cersei the first time, she's weaving. Yeah, um, oh, totally. She's Penelope too. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was, uh, what I was getting at. She's weaving like Penelope's weaving. Um, and that's another, I mean, we know that Greek women weave um, because of the rest of the Odyssey and the Iliad. We also know that because of our previous series on uh, Sappho and everything we said about Greek women and weaving. But I, I do think um, Penelope is an important thing to keep in mind here because of everything you just said about home and everything that home means. And um, we know I mean, we know, but Odysseus does not know um, what Penelope is weaving and unweaving and, and how she's kind of exercising her power the way that she can. So uh, when we see Circe weaving again, I think we, we are supposed to um, see her as a kind of mirror of or, or inversion of Penelope too, yeah. I have so much to say, but Jay, I'm not going to. I'm not going to speak over you. No, it's okay because you you both hit the points that I had I, that I had made. I had the two main main ideas I had were that uh, Cersei is showing perverse hospitality, and mm-hmm. that's why I really I really liked Victoria. You used the word perverse and like her the, your first description. I was like, yes, I'm not the <laughs> o- not the only one. And um, she was a foil to Penelope, where, and the, uh, I only added to that was that Cersei seemed to be weaving a a perfect environment. Mm, um, that's well said. They didn't. Oh, I love know, that. She, she wants she wants people to stay there. I mean, and even even knowing what he knows, as you you both pointed out, knowing what she is, Odysseus and his men still stay there a full year. A full year. Yeah, and I love the way that you put that. She's woven this kind of almost a trap for them of, of satiation, right? And, and But it's a it's a pen. It, they're stuck as pigs, it, <laughs> even though they're a, not pigs anymore. It's the Greek version of, uh, of Pleasure Island. Yeah. Yes. And so if you go to the weaving in, uh, image as kind of a tale-telling, you know, like a Scheherazade or something like that with Penelope, weaving her loom and then unweaving it. It's like, she's just constantly weaving the story for them to just be tempted to stay inside of. Uh, not unlike Calypso. Yeah. Scheherazade is a, is a good um, point. I, I wrote Prospero in my, uh, mm, in my margins too. Yeah. The, the power of the tale telling, right. The, the sort of weaving um, a web, a trap, um, but it's a trap of comfort. So, so maybe Odysseus's adaptability is is virtue and vice. Then, because her, her, Hermes Hermes says after that, when he's giving him the the magic plant, um, that that he can adapt to anything. You know, yeah, he he, does. he adapts to being there a year too. And yeah, yeah. Is this, 
wasn't the purpose of that of that plant, and I might be misreading it. The purpose was to make Odysseus temperate, to to calm his his emotions. Is that that's, the word that's, he that's, uses? That's what. That is what I wrote down, and I think that was that was some outside research because I was trying to find out what it was that Hermes gave him. And in most aspects, from what I found, is it's, it was Molly that symbolized temperance, but only in some respects. So it wasn't a complete temperance. Hmm. But I just, I just wondered if it was supposed to temper Odysseus, I would not want to see him intemperate. Which <laughs> I, think, I think we already saw previous. Yes, yes. Well, yeah. you know, you know, it's not for nothing that not only is there food and wine in abundance, there, everything is gold or silver, finely crafted. You know, everything is just ornate. It's almost like a church. Yeah, but but not a church, right? Like a no, <laughs> like a temple, like a yes, more like a. But it's the goddess, the god of all that bacchanalia. You know, like that, like right. Yeah, every, everything's a, a little too much. A little too much. Dazzling bed, you know, generous feast. Um, and she's got oil. She's always, like, bathing and oiling these men, like, after they return from being pigs. That that happens, though, at regular feasts, too. Like, uh-huh. I, I mean, it, it does seem to be her doing it more than in other situations it's always these like hordes of nameless slave women who are uh oiling these troops of men and bringing them Uh food um the the slave women seem to get everything done um in the odyssey uh in in lots of situations but yeah you're right that there's there's a lot of kind of physical pampering happening yeah, and that they, did you notice this? This is the first time I noticed this, just from this translation, that they were younger than before and more handsome after they returned back to men from being pigs. Yes, because in my margins I wrote, really? Because <laughs> <laughs> there, there were, there were several, several situations, that situation where they get more handsome, and also the... Um, the the part where uh, Circe and Odysseus are about to have sex, and she makes the like series of sword sheathing puns. Um, I yes. also I also w- wrote <laughs> really like, <Yeah. laughs> like this is what we're doing. Uh, yes, in fact, it, it is. <laughs> it's this sort of over over the top um, sort of romance novel stuff in in both situations. Yeah, but isn't that the point? Uh, you know, like one could argue that the whoever Homer is is just kind of going for it. You know, like just... oh yeah. I mean, I I think it's delicious. I it's it's really um, <laughs> it's really enjoyable. Um, but it's you know it's it's delicious because you know it's in excess. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay, um, have we talked enough about that, or do we have more to say? No, why, why after a year do they suddenly, then all of a sudden they're like, hey, now we're, we're ready to go home. You know, yeah. there's no whole <laughs> year. I was really struck this time, I mean, I've, I've read the Odyssey a lot, um, 
but I, I was really struck this time that they're there for a whole year. Mm-hmm. It's a long time. Yeah, so why 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 do we think they they go home? What is it? Let's let's go to that place. Yeah, line uh, four eighty ish. Cersei, I said, fulfill the vow you made to send me home. My heart now longs to go. My men are also desperate to leave. Um, whenever you are absent, they exhaust me with constant lamentation. Whenever you are absent, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's just like you know, they kind of realize they're dependency on this kind of web she's weaving of you know i don't know excess right i don't know it's hard to there's not a lot there and then she has the gall to say uh great king odysseus master of every challenge you need not remain here in my house against your will yeah and then but which like gross (laughs) but you've got to complete another journey and that's something we should ask too like what why <laughs> you know to me that's one of the big questions like who is Cersei to be I have to say you can't go home now you've got to complete another journey go and see Tiresias yeah. in the underworld that is that is interesting but I, oh, I uh, think he, I I do think Cersei is very cool and interesting but also oh, totally. I mean all of this is more than a little bit rapey and we should talk about that <laughs> <laughs> it's more than a little bit rapey, yes. Yeah. It re- well, it's it's the female sexuality trope, right? Of the what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the one that's just insatiable and sucks you in, mm-hmm. succubus. You know that that trope is definitely a part of this. Yeah, the, the whole unquenchable desire thing is there, but I I mean it doesn't excuse the lack of consent and the fact that she says you don't have to stay here against your will is just like, that's absurd. <laughs> like the yeah. whole, the whole thing is she drugged them and then used magic against their will. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> yep. In the previous, I guess we'll call it the previous episode when Odysseus first goes into uh, Circe in my margins, I wrote Stephen King and it, because it no. just it it just struck me that that was the solution. It's like, oh, you have a problem. We can sex our way out of it. <laughs> That's really funny because I was on this show where we talked about that. Oh, not it. We talked about misery. That's what I was just thinking that you were talking about. Um, That's so funny that that's where my mind went to. I. It is not unhorror movie like. I think that's a it's a great point to make, Jay. So, do we want to say more about consent, or are we? Be good. Well, I think it also shows just how, like, there, there's no one. Well, you know, Odysseus might be the might be the hero, but he's not a good guy. There's there's no one really good in this book, or in this particular chapter, even we might say, if we're looking at it, because both, in my opinion, both Circe and Odysseus do the same things to each other. It's almost like like a battle of of the wills. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty codependent relationship. Yeah, and I just was looking at this section when this guy, and I don't know how to say his name, Eurylochus, the guy who didn't listen to Circe and believe her, and and Odysseus is like, let's go up there, and Eurylochus, or, 
how do you say that? Says fools, why would you go up there? Why would you go to that? And then and this is like I want to just cut his head off. <laughs> Four forty. At that, I thought of drawing my long sword from from by my sturdy thigh to cut his head off and let it fall to the ground. Although he was close family, and then his men restrained him. That's a pretty violent response to some guy who's like, um, she's just trying to turn us into pigs. You know, <laughs> she's tricking us. Yeah, and he's not wrong. So no. he's not wrong. <laughs> And Odysseus has a really strong, violent reaction when I chopped his head off. I mean, he has violent reactions to a lot of things. Yeah, he does. And, you know, that's one thing that struck me about um, when we did the Iliad. It was just how when Odysseus was discussed, he's a very active, very physical, very violent person. He's always the one that wants to go into battle. Um and I, you know, I had just not read and studied the Iliad near as much as the Odyssey. So it really struck me. And, and that has kind of informed my rereading now of the Odyssey. And, and even when he makes good decisions, he sometimes does it in very physical, violent ways. Like when he's, um, when, they, when they tie him to the, the mass of the ship um, mm-hmm. l- later, you know, when he's... Uh, when they're trying to avoid the, I know we're not talking about this, but later when they're trying to avoid the song of the sirens, um, he, you know, has to be tied to the mast because he's so strong and he can even hear through the earplugs and there, there's mm-hmm. much, much made of his, his extreme physicality in that moment. So mm-hmm. even when he, you know, he's doing the right thing in that situation, he's doing it in this kind of larger than life physical way. Yeah. And this might be a good time for us to move to, to going to Hades, the underworld or whatever, because, you know, you notice that when Tiresias says, Oh, by the way, you're going to go home. It's going to be a better, better homecoming. And you're going to kill everybody. And this is like, that's great. <laughs> you, you he doesn't even for a moment go like, what, I'm going to kill everybody there? You know? Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of striking. It just doesn't, nothing about that prophecy bothers him very much. Yeah, and he says these super specific things about, like, the cattle of the sun. and yes. And all the suitors. And Odysseus doesn't pause once and say, like, wait, my wife has how many suitors what? <laughs> like, he doesn't care about any of that. Weird magic cows, nothing. Nothing gets a reaction. So before we jump into the underworld, um, I want to talk about maybe my favorite strange uh, transitional digression uh, in all of the Odyssey, which is poor Elpinor, who seems to just die mm-hmm. so we can get to the underworld. <laughs> poor guy. Um, I know. Yep. The drunk guy who just falls poor, down the stairs. Poor or dummy. Um, yeah. Who who dies in such a stupid way? Falls off the roof. Actually, that's really like a college thing, isn't it? Like a frat thing. Got drunk and fall off the roof. Yeah, gets um gets drunk, and he tells us, uh, near the beginning of Book Eleven, line sixty or so, uh, in Circe's house, I lay upstairs, and I forgot to use the ladder to climb down from the roof. Which <laughs> I agree with your frat description. That's like such a college student <laughs> excuse. Not he fell, but he forgot to use the ladder. The ladder. I fell, I, I fell head first. My neck was broken from my spine. My spirit came down to Hades. 
Um, and then he juxtaposes his ridiculous death uh, with the oaths that um, that Odysseus is supposed to swear. By the men you left, the absent ones, and by your wife and father who brought you up from babyhood, and by your son Telemachus, whom you abandoned alone at home, I beg you, when you sail from Hades and you dock your ship again, please, my lord, remember me. Mm-hmm. So that goes in a split second from, like, hilarious to the saddest thing in the world. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, he gets and, in Odysseus's song, doesn't he? His name gets in there. Say more about that. Well, it, it, every time I read these kind of Greek epics, I, I realize that the naming of people is, is so significant. Remember when we were talking about Sappho, and it's like, you're going to go down to Hades, and I'm not even going to say your name. You know, um, <laughs> it, It's like, remember me, Odysseus, um, even though I'm the significant minor person, my name is in this... Um, tale that you're telling now yeah he's he's inserting his story into this litany of other people whose whose names we know yeah yeah mm-hmm. and you know what i kept i kept thinking about and this is so random but you remember when paul was preaching and that guy fell out the window and acts fell asleep and fell out the window and died and yeah you know time out yeah yeah i do i kept thinking about that it's like a kid Paul, boring, preaching, falls out the window, and that kid is named, isn't he? I don't remember his name at the moment, but there he is in the scripture. Huh, that's uh, a random connection. I wouldn't have thought about that in the same breath as this, but I, yeah, I think that's important. I think, um, you know, people's names matter and people's stories matter, even in the midst of longer, bigger stories. Yeah, it's just Mm -hmm. interesting. Just an interesting detail to put in Acts to begin with, right? Um, but this this is certainly an interesting person to stick in the middle of this epic tale. Um, Particularly when so much of Book 11 is about um, parents and children, right? And, and the legacies yes. of parents and children and, and what their relationships mean. That's right. And this is, yeah, because in fact he says, I cannot... I'm looking on page three or line three thirty of book eleven. I cannot name each famous wife and daughter I saw there, meaning in the underworld. Holy night would pass away before I finished. And it, the emphasis is on famous persons that they meet up with in the underworld, right? Agamemnon, yeah, and Achilles, and all these famous women who are married to and give birth to famous men, right? And it's it's the women who plead their cases to Odysseus, which and I think is Elfenor important. Somehow gets in there. <laughs> yeah, D- dumb drunk Elpinor is in the middle dumb, of this drunk parade of famous people. <laughs> it's kind of weird because it, you know this storytelling um, that Odysseus is doing, which you know you get little reminders in book 11 that he's telling this to other people. And they're like, don't go to bed, stay up and tell me more about what you heard in the underworld. Who else did you meet down there? Did you meet your friends down there? What was that like? You know, um, he's clearly got them in his grips with his storytelling. Um, What's more interesting than what people 
who died have to say, right? Yeah, because we don't get to hear it otherwise. We don't get to hear right? it otherwise. Mm-hmm. When when with Odysseus's them, mother talks, um, his yeah. conversation with her is so interesting for so many reasons. Um, because she tells us that she died of grief. She tells us that um, also his father died of grief. And then we get this um, interesting picture of, you know, like what kind of Greek manhood is that, uh, which I want to come back to. But the quote I was looking for, um, let me find it. I'm sorry. This is the rule for mortals when we die, 220 or so. Our muscles cease to hold the flesh and skeleton mm-hmm. together. As soon as life departs from our white bones, the force of blazing fire destroys the corpse. The spirit flies away and soon is gone, just like a dream. Now hurry to the light. Remember all these things so you may tell your wife in times to come. So mm-hmm. two things there. One, spirits um, in, the, in Hades are not body nor soul. They're neither of those things there's some weird liminal um other a shade uh right that's great a shade uh and um that he's supposed to remember her so that he can tell other people um she calls their existence like a dream um is it just because his father's name is Laertes that her whole speech makes me think of Hamlet and Hamlet's ghost and everything that they say about not coming back from the underworld, uh, you know, for in the sleep of death, what dreams hmm. may come when we've shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. Ooh. Like, all of that stuff is sort of tangled together in my head. Um, well, and I don't... do you think Shakespeare may have known his home more yet? <laughs> I mean, we, right? you know, we know that he did. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm certain that's why Laertes and Hamlet is Laertes. Yes. Um, it's, it's not coincidence. No. Uh, so, I don't even know what I'm asking, except like, isn't it so interesting? This, um, this series of parental relationships and what that tells us about storytelling and legacy and who lives on and why. Oh, totally. And that actually Mm -hmm. leads into the larger question that I wanted to ask you guys, which is why this episode? Like, why does Cersei say, you've got to go down and find Tiresias and whatever? Because it seems to me that what Tiresias says is so little compared to what else Odysseus learns in the underworld. You know, um, the Tiresias speech is yeah, it's a per- prophecy and whatever, but so <laughs> you know, it's not a big prophecy like oh, by the way, you married your mother. Um, I, you know, so why? I don't why know does if it, you have to go to the underworld. Go well, I, I was going to say I don't know if it's the prophecy that's the important thing because, as you said, it gets no reaction. In mm-hmm. in mine, he's like, oh well, the gods will have their way or something like that, and then he goes on. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that epic trope that all great heroes go to hell to see someone or rescue someone or or something of that nature. It's like Odysseus is a hero, therefore he will make a journey to the underworld, and this is how we're going to get him there. But that's he doesn't way, do anything the way like that, that there. He doesn't do anything <clears throat> significant there. One could argue that he learns things significant there. And I, I feel like 
that might be the bigger issue. So it's sort of like, what did he learn from his mother? He was really actually quite desperate to talk to her, as, as Victoria pointed out. Mm-hmm. And he learns that there's the, the, the we're just shades down here, to put it that way. And I always am struck by what he learns from Achilles. Like yeah, Achilles I, like, I want to talk know, about Achilles too, and Achilles's desire to uh, learn about his own son. Yeah, but even before that, he's just like, I would 10 times rather be a boring father with no, you know, kind of, not father, boring farmer with no kind of glory than be down here. I don't know. It it seemed almost like a memento mori or sort of like a, you know, just remember, you know, you're way better off up there. Uh, I don't know. Just having done the Iliad so recently, it just feels like there's got to be some connection between the way that Achilles for a long time kind of resisted being in battle and, you know, but was still the hero, right? Like, and died. But the the lines I'm referring to are around 490, you know, it, where Odysseus says to him, Achilles, you should not be bitter at your death. But he replied, Odysseus, you must not comfort me for comfort me for death. I would prefer to be a workman hired by a poor man on a peasant farm than rule as king of all the dead. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then he, he immediately about asks about his son and his father, son. and they're standing in the community. So it's, it's still all about honor. Uh, tell mm-hmm. me about my son. Do you have news? Did he march off to war to be a leader? And what about my father? Peleus, Peleus, does he still have good standing among all the Myrmidons or do they treat him badly? So, mm-hmm. like, his values are still earthly honor. warrior values. Yeah, honor-based. But what uh, do you make of that? Like, sort of, I'd rather be a farmer still alive than be the, you know, ruler of, of the underworld. Um, Achilles disagrees with John Milton, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, right. Or, or, or at least with Milton's Satan. I don't, I don't want to commit the sin of conflating poet and speaker. So, (laughs) sorry, John Milton. Um, (laughs) You are not your speaker, Satan. (laughs) No, no. Um, Yeah, I, I do think that's interesting, particularly in terms of. Achilles as hero and and how he's kind of a a, a sad, disappointing hero in in so many respects, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last uh, the last comment that we get about him in the underworld is so um, so rich with irony. Achilles' ghost took great swift-footed strides across the fields of Asphodel, delighted to have heard about the glorious prowess of his son. Um, so what's the last thing we hear about Achilles? We hear about his feet and how he walked. Because, um, mm. you know, that's how he dies, famously. Mm-hmm. As we know, mm-hmm. he gets mm-hmm. shot in his uh, the only mortal spot, his foot. So even, you know, even when he gets one final um, moment of glory, it doesn't come from him, and it comes in the form of a reminder of how he fell. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about that. And I, it's funny because I noticed that, that it was pointed out, but it just didn't occur to me to think about the Achilles heel thing. Interesting. I'm hmm. not reading too much into that, right? It matters that they talk it about his matter. foot. 
It does. I think so. It matters. Yeah. Yeah. And people cry a lot down there in the underworld. Well, I th- and that again goes back to that Greek idea of the afterlife is that for most people that is that is the afterlife. There's no there's no there's no hope of anything better. There's no there's no I, I, I wanted to say there was no love to be found because even in in the shades that we find, there's very little expression of of love, at least in my translation. It's always a desire for information. It's yes. not it's not the same. Um, Tell me about the people who are still living. Right. It, it's like you, you have a few remember me to to whoever, but for the most part, they they want to know what's going on. They're they're not interested in any kind of continuing any kind of of relationship, familial or otherwise. Mm-hmm. There's or at least they know they can't or something. Right. I mean, yeah. we can. Yeah. For, for, we'll have to get to Dante for that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's no glory to be found because mm-hmm. Achilles, Achilles, you know, we we just finished talking about him, and he'd rather be a poor farmer than than king of hell. And I mean, ultimately, for the Greek, there's there's no happy ending of any kind to be had. Mm-hmm. That the most the most that they can expect going back to Sappho is that someone remembers who they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's not glorious. <laughs> No, and maybe that's why he's sent there. Maybe he's supposed to learn that Odysseus is. I don't know. I, you know, I don't know because somehow he's got to long more for home, right? For home, a mortal home, and what he's got there with Penelope. Well, yes, and and you said earlier, Christina, that the prophecy Tiresias's prophecy doesn't matter, and you're right, it doesn't matter. But there's a degree to which it does, because Tiresias's prophecy is, in a certain way, about the same thing that all these shades in the underworld are talking yes. about, right? It's about familial yes. connection and right. and relationship, a good home, right? Um, you know, it's. As, as gruesome and and horrible slash satisfying as what happens to the suitors is, um, ultimately that's about Odysseus protecting his relationship with his wife and and the fact Correct. that you know no one else's bloodline is is going to usurp his bloodline and his place in legacy and tradition and story and all the things we're talking about. Um, so. Yes, it doesn't really matter, but also they're, they come back centrally to, to the same idea that family and home are incredibly valuable and, and worth defending at all costs. Yes, I, I couldn't mm-hmm. agree more with that. The last time I taught the Odyssey, it was in my senior seminar, and that's the subject of the senior seminar was home. You know, So it was so interesting to take that theme, the whole idea of home, and read the Odyssey through that. Because there's just tons of rich stuff, um, uh, especially with, you know, at the end, which we're not talking about right now, but with the bed and everything that they have there made out of the tree. You know, it just it's so interesting that that's that's one of the major themes of the book and that Odysseus, in fact, dies an old man, uh, according to the Tiresias prophecy and not without um certainly no surprise that Agamemnon's story is very highly featured uh, of the shades. 
Yeah, right. I live, right. I, we we haven't really talked about this parade of of women's stories um, as much as I wanted to. So let's touch on that yeah. real quick um, <laughs> before we finish. And I think Agamemnon and and Clytemnestra are are probably the best. Um, place to go what it what does it mean that that story of a a different kind of homecoming um is 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 here too (laughs) jay did what did you want to say about i I was going to a couple of things actually but first i wanted to say that in this um i know victoria just remarked on like the parade of the parade of these women and in my translation around line 203 uh Fitzgerald call translates it as a loveliness of ghosts, and I think that that's a kind of unique, <laughs> a unique way to to describe a a collective noun. It's like, oh, it's a loveliness of ghosts. I like that you a lot. Um, as for as for Agamemnon, um, if I can go slightly off off topic, I've I've always joked with with my wife that if we ever had a son, I wanted to name him Agamemnon. I really don't know why. <laughs> But it was just like one of those. It's like, well, why not? But I always felt kind of, I always felt kind of bad for Agamemnon. I mean, he was not a good guy. He didn't really deserve to have a happy ending. But I don't think he deserved to have the ending he got either. Well, and that's in fact one of the points I, I think is that is that um, you should not have to have a wife like this. Right. <laughs> um, and Odysseus, you're so lucky that you don't, that Penelope is not like this. But don't be too nice for, to her. <laughs> I had some things from her. Yeah. <laughs> right. There's a little bit of interesting advice given in, in, uh, in there. Um, but, but then, you know, I, I, the reason why so I then, like the, go ahead. I was going to say, so then going back to the, uh, the Hamlet meta, the Hamlet analogy. Does that make Agamemnon uh, Polonius? Polonius, he's the one that. Do, does it make it? Isn't he the one? Go ahead. Polonius, or I, I thought, mean, I guess maybe I have him wrong. I don't. Know. I guess I it don't. does. The name is not coming to my mind po- at the moment. Polonius is is Ophelia's father. He's this uh. sort of dupe. A courtier that doesn't realize everything that Claudius and Gertrude are doing. I mean, Agamemnon is smarter than Polonius. Yeah, I shouldn't slander Agamemnon. That's that the that's the lowest bar in the world. I mean, everybody's smarter than Polonius. But I want to go back to Agamemnon, Agamemnon for a minute because yeah, let's let's talk famous, more about that. Well, no, the famous scene that is quoted by William Faulkner at the beginning of As I Lay Dying, right? Um, 425. I am an American lit prof, so it all goes back to American lit for me. As I lay dying, struck through by the sword, this is line 425. I tried to lift my arms up from the ground. That she-dog turned away. I went to Hades. She did not even shut my eyes or close my mouth. Like, he is descending to the dead and she doesn't even shut his eyes. And that is what Faulkner quotes at the beginning of his novel, As I Lay Dying. And the title comes from that line as well. And it's kind of a, I don't know how familiar you are with that novel, but it's a mock epic of this kind of family's journey that is like a reverse epic, you know, a mock epic. Yeah, you you don't really um, grow up in Georgia without reading uh, way too much of of both uh, Faulkner and O'Connor. 
Um, yeah. Though I, I, I like O'Connor and I'm not a huge Faulkner fan. Oh, um, you're not. I, lo- I like that novel a lot. As I Lay Dying, I think is a very successful novel. I um, should probably come back to it as an adult. Um, I was, you know, forced to read a lot of that in oh, high school yeah. and, and probably couldn't really handle it for lots of reasons. Um, but yeah, I think the, the reference is important to point out. And it's important to mention that what Clytemnestra is doing here is such a violation because it violates those Greek principles of order and hospitality that we mm-hmm. talked right. about so much. Right. You're not even closing my eyes as I descend to the dead. And we may have already said it, but again, she's she's not Penelope. Rather than right. conspiring against the suitors, she's conspiring with them. Mm. Well said. Plotting to murder me instead of plotting to save me or plotting to keep the suitors away until I got back home. Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's using her feminine wiles in the other direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting, Jay, that's such a great point because he, Agamemnon says, when I got back home, I thought I would be welcomed at least by my slaves and children. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I got no welcome when I went back home. And this seems to be really one of the main reasons why what Odysseus really needs to hear. Like, go home. You're, you're going to be lucky. You're going to be welcomed uh, when you get home. So we've, we've gotten a lot of foils and inversions that have motivated Odysseus to his main goal in this section, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one could argue, the more I read this, the more I I feel like that really is the main thing that's going on, right? It's it's sort of like, how long is it going to take for Odysseus to figure out what he, you know, the whole journey is to be going home, but he never really seems to want it enough. Why would you stay with Circe for a year? Why would you stay as as long as he did with Calypso, right? I mean, he doesn't know he's a character in a story, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. Like his drive right. to be home is not strong enough. I I do, but I'm you know he he exists in this oral tradition that we are learning from, right? And, and he doesn't, you know, want anything because he's not real. So I think we have to <laughs> okay. sort of think of both of those things at once, right? Yeah, of course. But I, you know, I'm just saying within the fictional world sure. of, of this, like what what is Homer or the poet, whatever you the poet we know as Homer <laughs> wanting us to, to think about what Odysseus, you know, right. um, needs to learn or figure out. Well, maybe that's our answer to why the underworld now, because what the underworld seems to be giving him is, is imperfect images, pictures, mirrors, shades, all of those mm-hmm. words um, of his actual purpose of home mm-hmm. and family and legacy. So may, maybe that's, maybe that's why the underworld. Well, that, that's what I'm driving at. I mean, that, I, you know, the big question as I was reading this section was why this and why does Cersei say you have to do this? And I, and I I think that's the conclusion that I've come to is that this is something that he needs um, right now. 
But maybe that's like the only way to get him to see home is to show him not home. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. That he needs to see the sort of, you have no idea how good you have it in Penelope. Right. Mm-hmm. Coming from Agamemnon. Or even just from Achilles. You have no idea how good you have it that you're just alive. <laughs> you know? Or uh, even like know. all all the women whose family stories we get too. Like we get told about their husbands and sons mm-hmm. so that so that he can realize his rightful place with his wife and son and that he needs to stop all these suitors from their getting up to their nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. So get away from Calypso, get away from Circe, get home, you know, <laughs> and take right. care of business. Stop yeah. stop fooling around with all these not Penelope's and, and go. Get yeah, and you know, it's so Penelope. interesting because Agamemnon is kind of blamed for, by Odysseus or somebody, I can't remember, in this section for this ridiculously long war with the Trojans to begin with. You know, it's like this was... Agamemnon's unhappy war that I kind of got sucked up into, even though Odysseus was totally like a warrior, you know. Did, do you remember that that section? I can't remember exactly where it was. Or I pointed out, but um, it's it's, it's yeah, almost like Agamemnon's unhappy war, you know. And so it's so interesting that Agamemnon's like, look, look what happened to me, you know. There does um, seem to be a little bit of a. A little bit of a hit on the whole idea of the ridiculousness of the Trojan War, like we talked about when we talked about the Iliad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I'll look for that while you guys are talking about something else. But it just it struck me that it's like this is just this unhappy war that we did this for this many years, um, and it's so dumb. And now it's taking so many more years to get back, you know wandering, roaming. Yeah, I can't find it either. Yeah. We prob we probably need to wrap up. We're at yeah, just over sure. an hour now. <laughs> We're having so much fun. Um okay, so we've talked about the underworld and children and parents and legacies and the journey home. Um what are you guys final thoughts on books ten and eleven? I just will say I love I love book 11. I love the journey to the dead. I just love the whole idea of going down to underworld and seeing all these these famous figures like Tantalus and Sisyphus and you know these ones that are just like tortured uh with with desires that can never be met. I just I just find that incredibly interesting reading and I can see why the people that Odysseus was telling the tale to wanted to stay up later. That's my final thought. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Um, it is certainly interesting to to meet all those famous figures and and think about um, how people are going to be remembered and and what the afterlife is like. What about you, Jay? Um, it's gonna say it's it's very odd. But in my translation, there was a line spoken by Achilles, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. And he uses the phrase to describe those in there in the underworld as the exhausted dead. 
Mm. And it and it just made me think, it's like, how often do we, you know, we have that idiom, it's like, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And it's like, well, not if you're Greek. <laughs> and it's like, even, wow. even, even the, even the dead are exhausted, whether it's from, you know, remembrance of things past or that constant, as we talked about before, that constant hopelessness. I mean, that mm. sounds like, a, it sounds like a downer to end on, but that's, that's kind of what I come away with from books, from books. 11 is this whole is this idea of i don't know i wouldn't call it despair but it's somewhere between despair and hopelessness but i think that it serves as a motivator to get a fire under odysseus Mm. yeah thanks that's um Uh, yeah (laughs) sorry no i'll come up i'll come up with a happier one no that's okay i mean it's kind of unfair to say, tell me what you take away from the underworld and then uh, expect a happy answer. <laughs> but maybe it's just because uh, we're in the middle of Corona tide and I haven't seen a lot of people in person in a long time, but um, mm. I'm really struck by the the kind of permanence of family in this section and the idea that even these people who are dead and despairing, as you say, that what they want to know about are their family members specifically and and the importance of connections between people and um, legacy. I know I've been like much of um, America the past few weeks listening to uh, Hamilton on a loop, but um, one of the thing one of the things I wrote uh, in the margins of Book Eleven was uh, "Who lives, who dies, who tells your story," um, and this this idea of one thing that's really important about this underworld section is that people are woven together into stories, and and we all kind of affect each other's lives. Um, families and and other people that we are connected to. So that's I think my takeaway from this is that you uh, you never know kind of whose story you've entered into and and how it's going to be written down. Maybe you're Achilles the tragic warrior, or maybe you're uh, poor dumb Elpinor, Elpinor. who, who kind of gets thrown in by accident. But uh, soon, sooner <laughs> or later, you're going to be. You're going to be written somewhere, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's well said. Okay. Uh, We've been talking for long enough, I think. Thank you all for listening to the Core Curriculum. Core Curriculum is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, Please come back and listen next time when other panel members will be talking about books 12 through 14 of the Odyssey. Thanks for listening, everyone.